Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of the Macro Compass here on BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel. This is basically a video release of the weekly article that I publish on the Macro Compass, my free newsletter. First of all, thanks, everybody, guys. We made it over 100,000 people. I'm very happy about that. The article of this week looks at parallels between the current macro condition and the late 2000, beginning of 2001. And looking at historical parallels to assess macro conditions actually is a useful exercise. Um, sometimes, you know, history doesn't perfectly repeat itself, but it often rhymes. When last I did this analysis was in December 2021, where if I looked at historical parallels, I found out that 2022 had pretty much a high potential of being what I called 2018 on steroids. And 2018 was a period where all asset classes delivered negative returns. The conditions were pretty similar, and that's what we are getting in 2022. But the past is only as relevant. We need to look at the future. So I decided to refresh my macro framework and dig into 50 plus years of history to find an evidence uh, for an historical parallel to the macro conditions we have today. And the evidence is pretty compelling. The next six months might well resemble the last quarter of 2000 and the first quarter of 2001. So if I look at that period, I see quite a lot of similarities. We're going to investigate a bit in this, in this piece. But just to sum them up, there were ex excessive animal spirits and risk-taking activities that were going on leading to that period, mostly exemplified by dot-com bubble. In late 2000, early 2001, financial conditions had become tighter. The Federal Reserve had raised rates by 200 basis point. The market was trying to kind of settle a bit and it had already gone into a drawdown. But most importantly, earnings and the labor market were both showing sign of weakness. Inflation, though, was at 4%, doubled the Fed target for basically a year in a row. And it remained stubbornly above 2% even as the market started showing cracks and even as the labor and market and the earnings started slowing down. And this delayed the ability uh, and limited the ability of the Fed to cut interest rates, which they only started to do later in 2001. If this sounds very familiar, it's because it is, I think. So in this piece, we will look at uh, our framework, we will update it. Uh, so all the macro indicators I look at and the monetary policy stance gorgeous that I built to guide us on the macro compass and also discuss the parallels between this period and that period and look at how several asset classes perform during early 2001 to learn some lessons about how to position our portfolios today. So first of all, let's refresh the macro compass framework that revolves around forward-looking macro indicators and the relative monetary policy stance. And when you basically assess where these two uh, axes are and where are we uh, heading to in that in those two directions, you can understand where do we stand in the economic cycle and also what the most appropriate asset allocation could be. So the outcome hasn't really changed. The macro compass has been pointing to quadrant four, the most defensive of all, for basically the entire year, but there are quite a lot of things that are brewing under the surface. So Let's refresh first the x-axis on this quadrant model, which is the forward-looking macro indicators. Those are pointing down, and the model informs us that on the rate of change in economic growth. So it's basically telling us whether economic activity is likely to accelerate or decelerate, and right now it's telling very clearly that it's likely to decelerate. So a couple of these forward-looking macro indicators that I like to use, there are plenty more that I blend into one big indicator, but the Two that I like to use are um, shown here in these charts. The first one 
is the ISM new orders to inventories ratio, the year-on-year change in this ratio. So it's the blue line in this chart, and it leads by nine to 12 months what the change in earnings growth will be for the S&P 500 companies. So basically, by looking at this ratio between new orders and inventories, you can get quite an idea of where earnings are going, especially when it comes to turning points in earnings, like you can see in 2008, in 2010, in 2019, but also in 2021, so post-COVID, basically. So um, the idea there is that if companies are reporting quite a, a sluggish pace of new orders, but at the same time they're building up inventories, a few quarters later you can expect, expect that earnings growth are likely to disappoint. And if I look at what this indicator is pointing at, is that over 2023 earnings growth is likely to shrink by 10 to 15 percent if um, you want to be consistent with the leading indicator we just discussed. The second leading indicator that I like to use is my flagship global credit impulse metric. Now, this metric uh, basically measures the rate of change of money creation for the real economy. So the real economy is the non-financial private sector. It's us, it's households, it's corporates. And if you think about it, this credit impulse measures if your bank deposits, which is the real economy money we use, are growing, at which pace are they growing? And the more they're growing, the more likely you're, you are to increase your nominal spending and to boost economic activity and vice versa. Now, if you look at the chart in July 2022, which is the latest available data, the G5 credit impulse printed at 20-year lows. And this is the combination of a huge post-pandemic fiscal drug, big Chinese deleveraging, especially in the real estate market, and global bank lending that has picked up but insufficiently to make up for these two very negative um, drivers behind the credit impulse. Now, the most interesting thing is that the credit impulse also leads uh, by uh, generally nine to 12 months changes in earnings. So when the credit impulse is very positive, earnings are likely to pick up and grow by 20, 30% a year. But when it's very negative, with a lag of about 12 months, generally earnings will shrink or anyway stop growing. Now, with such a large drop, a 20-year historically large drop in the credit impulse, one would expect, according to my model, again, that earnings are likely to shrink in 2023 by 10 to 20%. But look at the green dot. The green dot is analyst consensus expectations for earnings growth, which is still in the plus 8% area, which I don't think is really consistent with the macro framework we have here. So when you compare this period with late 2000, early 2001, the first check you can do is that economic growth and earnings are on the verge of a serious slowdown, exactly like it happened back then. When you look at the second axis of the macro compass, that's the relative monetary policy stance, that remains very tight. Now, the mistake that many investors do there is that they judge the Fed to be tight or loose based on the absolute level of interest rates. But my framework suggests that actually two things are more important. The pace of change in monetary policy, and most importantly, the central bank stance relative to equilibrium. Those are much more important to predict economic growth and the performance of asset classes. Now, before we talk about the relative to equilibrium, we need to talk about equilibrium rates for a second. And because there are much weaker demographics, labor supply growth is very, very slow. Productivity has gone down. There is a lot of unproductive leverage out there. Today's equilibrium rates for the economy to function are much lower than 20 to 30 years ago. So when you get a 5% treasury rate today, that is much tighter than the 5% that was up there in the 90s. So it's all relative. Now, once we define this, when it comes to the pace of change, 
the sharp pivot from the accommodative stance and, uh, in 2021 to the super restrictive approach in 2022 was truly impressive and it was incorporated by markets. But most investors haven't realized for how tight, how tight and for how long central banks will be especially against estimate of neutral rates. So look at this chart. This chart measures where five-year real rates in the US are trading against equilibrium. So the, the dotted white line would be zero. There would be a neutral stance. And as you can see, for most of the time, the Fed was accommodative over the last 20 years. When it was tight though, look at the yellow or the orange line. When, when real rates were 50 basis point above equilibrium or 100 basis point above equilibrium, the Fed was very tight. And it, if it was tight for a long enough period of time, then generally something broke. And the table below, you can see uh, that it identifies those periods, basically 2000, 2007, late 2018, and today, um, when the duration of these tight stunts generally overcome a couple of months, let's say it was at least three months of a tight stunts, where real yields traded above equilibrium rates by 50, 60 basis points on average, 12 months later, the S&P, dropped on average by 18% and credit spreads widened on average by 320 basis point. And today, real rates are trading 165 basis point above the estimates of neutral. That's historically tight. And we have already gone 113 days with real rates trading above equilibrium. So the observations I have there is that every time the Fed kept real rates 50 plus basis point above equilibrium for longer than a few months, something broke. And this time, I think it's it's a very similar pattern we're following. Generally, 12 months forward returns in S&P 500 were negative, high-yield credit spreads were wider. And in 2022, we are already 113 days through this very tight experiment. So watch out because generally this uh, creates headwinds for risk assets. But the reason why the Fed stunt is so tight is credibility in the first place. So the Fed and Powell have been so wrong for so long that actually they now need to restore their credibility. And to do so, Powell cannot let markets challenge his credibility further. So I built something that I call the Powell Credibility Indicator, and it measures market-implied real Fed funds in a year from now. So the story goes as follows. If Powell wants to be believed by markets to be very tight in his stance to bring inflation down, he needs to keep rates tight in real terms at least for a year. That's what history tells us. And tight means... He told us he wants to have them in the plus 1% area, which means that if markets are believing Powell, you will have the Powell credibility indicator trading above 1%. And right now we're at 1.2% because Powell was very credible during Jackson Hole, but watch out because if markets would challenge his credibility and bring down nominal interest rates and real interest rates, Powell will basically need to make sure that his credibility is restored and try and talk hawkish and push rates up again. And effectively, this means that the Fed relative monetary policy stance will have to remain tight for longer to restore credibility. Now, in late 2000, early 2001, Fed funds were at 6.5%. The Fed had raised rates by 200 basis points in nine months. Inflation was 4% for many quarters. So not as bad as today, but still way above the Fed target, which also meant that the Fed had to remain tight, even as the economy and earnings slowed down and was very hesitant in cutting rates. Now, that's a very similar situation to today. And if it sounds familiar, it's because it is. So let's summarize altogether why the end of 2000, beginning of 2001, makes a lot of sense as an historical parallel for today. So first, as a reminder, the macro compass framework is calling for slowing real growth 
possible inflationary pressures to be peaking, but to slow down a bit only, which means also because of the absolute level of inflation, the Federal Reserve will have to keep a very tight monetary policy ahead anyway, even if the economy, as the economy slows down. Now, if you look at the Q4 2000, Q1 2001 period, you have a very historical compelling uh, parallel because leading to that period, you have excessive risk taking in a dot-com bubble, which in 2021 was resembled by ARC, uh, excessive risk taking in digital assets, et cetera, et cetera. CPI had rapidly increased to 4% and stayed there for many months to come. The Fed had hiked rates by 200 basis points leading to that period. The Fed stance was very tight, above neutral, and the Fed had to keep rates there very tight for at least one year. The hurdle to cut rate to cut rates was very high, which is exactly the same situation as per today. And at the same time, forward-looking macro indicators showed sign of stress in 2000. By the end of the year, the labor market and earnings per share were weakening, but the Fed couldn't cut rates yet. So this sounds extremely familiar to the, to the outlook uh, we are going to be having most likely in the next six months. So it's time to look at how asset classes performed in late 2000, early 2001. And I put them up in this table here where you can see that there are a couple of key takeaways. The first is that equities kept selling off, but bonds did well. If you look under the surface, actually, also bond proxy and defensive equity sectors, for instance, utilities or um, consumer staples, they actually delivered positive returns. There will be a change compared to, to what we have seen this year. And that the dollar didn't really depreciate much, although the Fed started cutting rates later uh, as, the, as the end of Q1 2001 approached. Now, what I want to say, guys, is that risk assets do not benefit from a weaker labor market and weaker earnings in the first place. So this idea that weakness in the labor market and in earnings is bullish risk assets is not there. It's not true, especially when it comes to the first innings of this uh, nominal growth slowdown and labor market weakness because risk sentiment deteriorates. Growth is repriced down, earnings are repriced down, but the Fed cannot cut rates yet because it has an inflation problem. So the very first lag is still for equities to draw down, while at least the good news is that bonds could deliver some performance, especially in a relative basis. So I would expect bonds to do better than stocks over the next few quarters, as also uh, exemplified by this chart that looks at moments when the credit impulse is falling very fast, like today, Generally, with a three to six month lag, you have uh, the S&P underperforming treasuries. So the portfolio implications overall is that I don't think it's time yet to be drawn into these bear market rallies. It's still time to maintain a pretty hefty dollar cash allocation to not be exposed to cyclical equities. If you want to look at an exposure in equities, I'd rather prefer defensive sectors like utilities or consumer staples, for example. And on the bond side, patiently accumulate long-end bonds. Um, that's basically it when it comes to today. There are some interesting parallels to sum it all up between uh, now and late 2000, beginning of 2001, and a refresh of my macro framework points to these eerie similarities with that period, which saw major cracks happening in the labor market and earnings which then led to further sell-off in equities. It was not bullish for stocks yet. The good news is that at least there was some place where to hide in certain sectors of the, of, the, of the equity market and in some sectors of the bond market. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for uh, listening to this video versions of the Macro Compass. If you want to find out more about uh, content and what I produce, 
You can just go on Substack, themacrocompass.substack.com. It's free anyway. And a new article gets released in written format every week. Talk to you guys next week. Thank you.